This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. I am uh, quite excited about bringing this. I had been praying for it uh, for quite a while. And in my study, I came across this little, um, I don't know what it is, this little funny saying here that I thought I would uh, begin with. And uh, it was an article that came out a couple years ago that said that the top 10 ways you know if you're obsessed with the end times or obsessed with prophecy. I scored like a six on these. Number one, you always leave the top down in your convertible in case the rapture happens. Number two, you never buy green bananas. You get that? Uh, okay. Uh, maybe we'll just move on. Anyway, number three, you talk your church into adapting the 60s pop song, Up, Up, and Away, as a Christian hymn. Number four, barcode scanners make you nervous. Number five, you refuse a tax refund check because it comes to the amount of $666. Number six, and this is so true, you can name more signs of the times than you can commandments. Number seven, you believe that there is an original Greek and Hebrew text with Schofield's notes. Most of you probably won't get that. Number eight, you believe the term church fathers refers to Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. Okay. Number... Number nine, you get goosebumps when you hear a trumpet. And number 10, if you remember the Left Behind series, all 173 volumes of it, you use the Left Behind books as devotional reading. Anyway, those are the top 10 ways that you know if you're obsessed with prophecy. But the reality is that all of us, even lost people, all of us want to know what comes next. We look at the news, we look at the newspaper, we look at current events, we have this kind of idea about what the scripture says. And and then everybody's kind of mesmerized with the questions of what comes next or what's the next event on God's calendar. You know, and there's these charts and everybody disagrees with this, that and the other. And we talked about Tuesday that one of the things all Christians agree with is Jesus Christ will make a visible, tangible return to the earth. I mean, Scripture teaches that Old and New Testament, but everybody disagrees on how that's going to happen, when that's going to happen, the events that take place before or during or after that. And we're going to kind of clear through all that and look and see exactly what the Lord says about that. In theological studies, the discipline is called eschatology. But for church-wide, it's really just called the study of prophecy. Eschatology is the study of the end times, and we would just call it prophecy, where the Lord says something's going to happen, and some prophecies have been fulfilled and some haven't. And so we want to find out what the prophecies are for the end time. In other words, will Christ return to earth? And if so, when and how? How is that actually going to happen? And, and what happens when you study prophecy is all of a sudden everything else in your life 
all of a sudden seems to pause a little bit because we're so busy doing our own stuff. We're so busy at work and we've got this project our manager wants us to do. We've got a garden to plant or a wedding to plan or we're taking a vacation we're going to take and we're, we're doing all the stuff that's involved in us and we can't really see beyond tomorrow, the next day or next week. And then all of a sudden you start studying about prophecy and God's prophetic calendar and the events that are that we're at realizing there will be a second coming of Christ and there will be a judgment and the book of Revelation unfolds. And and all of a sudden you take a step back and go, wow, there is a history beyond where I'm at right now. There is a future that's far more important than the stuff that I just get so myopic about. And, And what happens is we begin to take a breath and realize, you know, a lot of the stuff that's going on right now may not be all that important when you view it in the eyes of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you may be asking a question that a lot of church members ask, why study prophecy? Well, because it's really cool and a lot of people will come and, and everybody will be talking about No, no, that's, that's the wrong way. I mean, why do we study prophecy? What's the, what's the whole point of that? And I want to show you something that is absolutely amazing that many of you may not be aware of. Prophecy is a major part in this Bible, this book of divine revelation. And I really didn't understand how major it was until I started doing some research. And what, um, what you have with Bible scholars is something called the law of proportion. And the idea is the fact that if I'm a father and I tell my son something once, it's important. True? But if I tell my son something 15 different times, if I keep reminding him about it, then it's super important. Then it's something I definitely want him to remember and I don't want him to forget. And the idea of the law of proportion is that the proportion of the scripture that is devoted to a certain topic indicates the importance of that to God. It doesn't mean that if God only says things once that it's not important, but it it seems logical that if he says things a lot, that it seems like that he wants to get our attention with this. And so if we take the law of proportion and we just look at prophecy, at eschatology, and stuff of that nature, I think you're going to be amazed with this. First of all, there are 31,124 verses in the Bible. Anybody counted those? Then you have to trust me on this, all right? 31,124 verses in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the number of predictions or the number of prophetic statements in the, in the Old Testament is 1,239. That's not of individual verses, but those are genuine predictions in the Old Testament. The number of Old Testament verses that contain those predictions is 6,641 out of all the verses of the Old Testament, which is 23,210, which means that almost 30% of the entire Old Testament deals with prophecy. Some of those have been fulfilled. Most of those have not. Did you know that a third, almost a a third of the New Testament was nothing but prophecy? No, I thought it was either these long psalms or these pithy um, proverbs or all these genealogy stuff. No, it's many of the psalms are prophetic, by the way. What about the New Testament? There's a number of predictions in the New Testament, prophetic statements in the New Testament, 578. That's 1,711 verses that contain those out of the 7,900 verses in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, 21% of the New Testament 
the, you know, it's, it's made up of Paul's letters, and we do have the book of Revelation, but it's made up of Paul's letters and the gospel accounts and the book of Acts. But of that 21%, one-fifth, over one-fifth of every verse in the New Testament deals with prophecy. And if we took the whole Bible as a whole, 27% of the Bible deals with prophecy, deals with 737 separate topics when it comes to prophecy. It's, uh, gets more interesting when you look at this law of proportion. Of the 333 prophecies concerning Christ in the Old and New Testament, only 109 have been fulfilled. That means there are 224 yet to be fulfilled about his second coming, Old and New Testament. There are over 300 references to the Lord's coming in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. That's one out of every 30 verses talks about the second coming of Christ. 23 of the 27 New Testament books mention the Lord's coming, not the first time, but the Lord's coming the second time. Jesus himself referred to his second coming at least 21 times. Uh, There are 1,527 Old Testament passages that deal with the second coming of Christ. That's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? It was that important even in the Old Testament. For every time the Bible mentions his first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. 800 more times than, or 800% more times than his first coming. And people are exhorted to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ over 50 times. By the way, um, are you ready? Do you pray at night, come Lord Jesus? Do we actively look for him to come? Now, we do when things are going bad. Oh, my gosh, you know, uh, the nation's in a terrible situation. I have some sort of illness. My life's worth nothing, so come, Lord Jesus. But how about when things are going great? How about when you win the lottery or get the big promotion or your family surrounds you and you just love them and everything's going? Do you still pray then? Or do we hold on to this world so tight? Why study prophecy? First reason is because uh, it's a very important part of divine revelation. Number second is because a special blessing is promised to those who study prophecy and pay attention to what it says. The uh, verse I'm talking about is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. And here the Lord says this. He said, blessed is he who reads, that's one, and who hears the words of this prophecy. Two, and number three, keep those things that are written in it. Why do I get a special blessing to a book written 2,000 years ago if I, if I read it and then listen to what it says and heed and believe and do what it says? It says because the time is near. The time is near for his return. But that was 2,000 years ago. Maybe it was they thought it was near, but it's not really near today, many of us believe. Which brings us to number three. Why was this special blessing given? And it's because prophecy is always about Christ. It's always about Christ. Look at this verse in Revelation chapter 19. John is talking about an encounter he had with an angel when he was up in heaven. And he got confused and he fell down at the face, at the feet of the angel to worship him. The angel said, no. He says, um, he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I'm a fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Don't worship me. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Because prophecy deals with Christ, the second coming of Christ, this 
climatic event that some people believe could happen at any time. Some people believe there are certain signs that have to happen before it, uh, it takes place. Which brings us to the big question that we have here, which is the imminent return of Christ. And this is what we're going to start with. We're going to talk a little bit about this, and uh, we're going to follow up with this on Tuesday and, and kind of look at some of the chronological events that will lead up to the return of Christ. But the question is, is Christ's return imminent? In other words, could it happen right now? Could it happen at this moment right now? Is, there, is, is it true that, that, that he could come back now? And this is where it gets a little bit confusing because the scriptures say that, yes, the Bible teaches that his return is imminent. It could return it. He could return it any time. Let me just share with you a, a couple verses that speak of that. This is Matthew 24. It says, watch therefore. Why? Why would I need to watch, Lord, if you're not going to return for 2,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 years? Watch therefore. Why? Because you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. Then he gives an example. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief would have come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. I understand that. What's the application? Therefore, you also be ready. Why? For the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. But the admonition here is his return can be imminent, so you need to watch. Look at Mark chapter 13. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray. Why? For you do not know when the time is. And he gives another example. It's like a man going into a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Okay. Watch, therefore, again, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. When could that be? In the evening? At midnight? At the crowing of the rooster? Or in the morning? Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. So what are you saying to us, Christ? What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. Because his return is imminent. Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven. Remember this verse? From which we also eagerly await, wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Since my citizenship is in heaven, since I'm a member of his kingdom, like, a, like someone who's trapped in a foreign land when my king is far away, I long for the day that my king would come to give me instructions, to take care of me, to comfort me, to set up his kingdom. Do you feel that way about the second coming of Christ? Hebrews 10, very popular verse here. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the matter of some, but exhorting one another. Why? So much the more as you see that day. And when you see the word day or the day of the Lord, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. When you see that day approaching. And by the way, I don't know when he's going to come. The angels don't know when he's going to come. But would you agree that he is closer today than he was yesterday? The day is approaching. James, the men are going through this on um, Thursday, soon now changed to Wednesday. Look what it says here. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Wow. And then he gives another example. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rains? You also be patient. Establish your heart. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, third time, the judge is standing at the door. 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things it is, is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. One thing I've noticed is when you come to a realization that your life doesn't last forever and that uh, you will either have, as we talked about on Tuesday, a personal eschatology, a personal end time where you end up with cancer or something happens and you realize that your tenure here in this body on this earth is limited, or the Lord comes for a general eschatology and removes us all. The fact of the matter is once you realize that life doesn't just rock on like it always has, all of a sudden you take the things of the spirit far more seriously. If you found out today that either Jesus was coming January 1st, 2018, or you were going to die by January 1st, 2018, do you think you would take life a little more seriously than you do now? Do you think you would pray more? Do you think you'd be more intense on witnessing to your family? Do you think you would care who the Carolina Panthers were playing when you realize in four months or three months you're going to be dead anyway? Or would you spend more time understanding his word and memorizing it and, and trying to prepare yourself to meet your judge? The end of all things is at hand, Peter says. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And then we have in the book of Revelation, one time after another, after another, look what happens here. Revelation 1.3, we've already read, for the time is near. Jesus now, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. Revelation again, behold, I am coming quickly. Second time he said this, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. Third time, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The reality is that um, the scriptures teach us that Jesus can come at any time, any time. But they also teach us that there are certain things that have to happen before he comes. So it's almost like there's a contradiction here. Let me share just a couple of those with you. First of all, the scripture says the gospel must be preached to all nations. Matthew 14, or 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then... After that's done, the end will come, the second coming of Christ where he sets up his kingdom. So I, got, I know that his return is imminent, but then again, I see that somehow the gospel must be preached to all nations. Matthew 24 says that the great tribulation has to take place. Look at verse 15. should be turned to it. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the, Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and that's when... That's when the Antichrist comes and sits down on the Bema seat in the Holy of Holy and demands to be worshipped. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop not go down and take anything in his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or in the Sabbath. For then, 
At that point, then there will be great tribulation. You know, you have a seven-year tribulation period. That it's all called just the, the tribulation. Only the last three and a half from this event on are referred to as the great tribulation. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And then he goes on to talk about other events that have to take place, such as false prophets working signs and wonders. Look at verse 23. Then, we're in the middle of the great tribulation now. Then if someone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. Why? For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Then there are signs in the heavens that have to take place. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they, when they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And on and on and on. So some people see an imminent return of Christ, and some people say, no, that hasn't happened yet, so we got nothing to worry about. And all the gospel maybe hasn't been preached to all the nations, we have nothing to worry about. And Israel, all of Israel hasn't been saved, which is something that has to take place. Look at Romans 11. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness has in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. And the rest of verse 26 just quotes a verse from the Old Testament that shows that. That hasn't happened, and, and this hasn't happened either. The Antichrist hasn't showed up. I want you to... Um, I want you to look at this very carefully. This is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul had um, spent just a short time in Thessalonica. He had uh, won some to the Lord there and established the church. And because of great persecution that took place, especially for the church there, he, uh, he left and he was very concerned about them. And he sent one letter back to see how they were doing. And then he got word that they were struggling because they were struggling with a, a misunderstanding of the end times. And, and what happened is they had believed that the, the coming of Christ was so imminent that some of the people in their congregation had passed away. And they passed away between the time Paul talked to them and the time he wrote the letter back to them. And they thought if they've already passed away, then they've missed the day of the Lord. They've missed their salvation. What happens to them? Because they were sent some letter or a prophetic statement in the church, or some sort of counterfeit apparition in the church that basically tried to convince them that the second coming of Christ had already happened. So Paul begins to say, no, that hasn't happened because there's a couple events that have to take place first. Look what it says here. Now, brethren, concerning one, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and two, our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled by either a spirit or a word or by a letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. 
Let no one deceive you in any means, for that day will not come unless one, the falling away comes first. This is the great apostasy takes place when what is truly orthodox Christianity is no longer truly orthodox Christianity, and people basically follow Christ of their own making and reject Christ and and, and go like the, the wide road versus the narrow path that Jesus talked about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it says, great falling away, and the man of sin, or the man of lawlessness, also called the son of perdition, is revealed. So there's a great falling away, and then all of a sudden this son of perdition is revealed. And Paul describes him as this, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, the son of perdition, sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is what's called the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about and Jesus talked about. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Which shows you what kind of intense Bible teacher Paul was to cover these matters in three weeks with a new Christian. And now you know, it says, what is restraining him. All right, so the Antichrist is going to show up and he's going to, declare himself God, but it hasn't happened today. It didn't happen yesterday. I don't know if it's going to happen tomorrow, but the reason why it hasn't happened is because something is restraining him, is holding him back. And now you know what is restraining, that he, we're talking about the man of sin, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This spirit of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, and if you notice your Bible, this is capitalized. He, the Holy Spirit, who now restrains, will do so until he, the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way. So I've got this Antichrist. I've got something holding the Antichrist back from having full reign on the earth. And it's defined by Paul as the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit is gone, then, of course, the Antichrist has full reign, and you see what happens in the the middle chapters of the book of Revelation. After then, after the Holy Spirit is taken away, the restrainer is taken away, it says the lawless one will be revealed. The lawless one will not be revealed until the restrainer is taken away, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is like this is in according with the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those not who are saved, but who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And so they think, no, this must be Christ. I'm having a good time living in my sin. And it says, and for this reason, because they refused the truth, God, he's the one that does this. God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, not lies, but a singular lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had had pleasure in unrighteousness. I told you I was going to, if we study this, we're going to basically begin with no assumptions here. And so what we have here is we have a seeming problem that needs to be reconciled. We have the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch, 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 watch. He can come at any day. You need to be watchful. I I got that, Lord. I'm going to watch. But wait a second. But there's no antichrist. 
There's no, um, there's no signs in the skies. There's none of all these things that are supposed to happen before you come. So you're telling me that I need to be watchful, but then again, I see things in Scripture that have to happen before you return. How in the world do I reconcile those? It's the difference between his first and second coming, or the rapture and the second coming of Christ. One of the most powerful verses that talk about the rapture is, um, is the verse that I just read to you. Because where does the Holy Spirit reside now? In you. In you. He doesn't reside in a building. There's no more tabernacle or sanctuary or something of that nature. The Holy Spirit resides in you. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. He is your deposit, your guarantee of your future inheritance, inheritance to come. He is yours. And now the Holy Spirit lives in me. And if the Antichrist is going to be revealed when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is taken away, that can only happen if those people who are in by or have the Holy Spirit in them are also removed. True? And this is where, this is not one place, there's many places, where people begin to understand about the rapture. The way it's reconciled is this way. First, you have Christ coming for his church because God is not going to pour out his wrath on his children because we're not to suffer condemnation. We are children of God. In the, revel- in the, in the seven-year tribulation period, the first three and a half of those years, if you will notice in the book of Revelation, it's, there's a lot of natural things that take place. There's a lot of man-made things that take place. It's bad, but it's not horrific. And then all of a sudden you've got this abomination of desolation that takes place. And then God pours these bold judgments out and these vile judgments on the earth. And they begin to experience in the last half of the seven-year period or the great tribulation, the wrath of God. What father pours his wrath out on his children? None. None. Old Testament imagery and Old Testament prophecies talk about the, the events that will take place at the rapture. So what God does to begin this is he simply removes his children, he removes the restrainer and in, or his children, and in doing so, removes the Holy Spirit. It's like we revert back to an Old Testament motif where the Holy Spirit didn't reside in people, but actually resided in a tabernacle at the Bema Seed and in the Holy of Holies. And then we see the Antichrist has full reign. Then you have three and a half years of this consolidation of power and everything focusing on Israel and a demise probably of the United States. And you've got, during that first three and a half year period, you've got a northern confederation from Ezekiel with Gog and Magog coming down, destroyed on the, the hills of uh of Judea. You've got a seven-year peace treaty that's ushered in by the Antichrist. It's violated. In the middle of that, you've got God pouring his judgment out in the last three and a half years, and we're not here. And at the end of that, you have Christ returning with power and glory to set up his millennial kingdom, which is we know as the second coming of Christ. So the way it's reconciled is the fact there's not, there's there's Christ's first coming and his second coming, but between those, he comes and gathers us together with him. The second coming of Christ is not imminent because there are events that have to take place, like a seven-year tribulation period, but the rapture can happen at any moment, any moment. And if you understand the passages we just looked at, and we will go into greater detail with these, that there's a teaching that says, that if you have heard the gospel and have rejected the gospel and the rapture occurs, that you're unable 
literally unable to come to Christ later on. I always thought that, you know, like my brother, for example, he's heard the gospel, then all of a sudden a rapture takes place and millions upon millions of Christians are gone and all the chaos that's going to happen because of that. And I'm gone and my family's gone and, and all of a sudden my brother would go, wow, wow, that, that makes sense. I guess I better get saved. But the scripture says that because they rejected all of that, that they're going to believe a lie and be sent by God, some strong delusion, to believe the lie and throw all their allegiance to the Antichrist, who will stand and do the very things that Christ, the very things, miracles, Old Testament miracles, that God showed whether or not, um, whether or not what happened here was either God or demonic, call down fire from heaven and stuff of that nature. You remember all that? And we'll, again, we will talk about that in time to come. But the reality is that his return is imminent for you and me because if the rapture occurs today and you don't know Christ, you're done. You're done. You will be sent a strong delusion. You will believe the lie. And the lie, of course, is the fact that, that the Antichrist is the Christ. You will throw your allegiance to him. You will be a rabid follower of him because he'll be the only hope that you have. You will believe whatever the government says that happened to all of us. Mother Gaia was purging herself or whatever reason that we left. But the fact is, that day will happen for you. So is his return imminent? Yes. Is the second return when he comes up and sets his millennial kingdom? No. But for believers in Christ, it can happen at any moment. And if it does, how are we to respond? How are we to act? See how this is reconciled? It's marvelous. What does it mean for us today? Fourth reason, last reason to study prophecy. There's, there's a bunch of these. I'm only going to give you four. It's because it'll change the way that you live today. Literally. If you truly lived every day believing that Jesus could come for you today, there'd be a great shout at the heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first and us that are still alive will be gathered and meet the Lord in the air and be forever with him, which the scripture teaches. I mean, if we really believe that, it puts everything in perspective. Oh, I'm so worried. I'm worried about nothing because it could happen. I'm getting ready to involve in some sort of sin. And I don't want to do that because I may stand before my Lord Immediately, he may, the rapture may occur in the middle of what I'm, uh, I'm doing. Look at what the scripture says. Just Romans 13. He says, and do this. It's a do and don't passage. Knowing the time. And what time is that? That now is the high time to wake up out of sleep. The lethargic, apathetic, sleeping church that just thinks since Christ didn't come yesterday and he's probably not going to come today, that he's, I don't care whether he comes tomorrow, that I can eat, drink, and be merry and do whatever I want and live my life the way I want because I got plenty of time. And Paul is saying in the Romans, no, we don't. And no, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to wake for our sleep, wake from our sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And the word salvation, of course, means deliverance. The night is far spent and the day of the Lord is at hand. Therefore, because of that, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day and not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. What are we supposed to do? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lust. 
because it doesn't matter if you begin to understand how imminent and soon his return can be. If you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to read these passages to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11. Listen to this. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. When is it going to come? When's the day of the Lord happening? For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes, so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet of hope, uh, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. 2 Peter 3.14 Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, and he's talking about the coming of the Lord, how am I supposed to respond? Be diligent to be found by him in peace, in purity, without spot and blameless. There's, a, um, there's an amazing truth out there that many of us forget because we get, I mean, it happens to me. I get, I get tied up in just everyday life and I'm raising my kids and I'm raising my grandkids and I look at my calendar and, and we, I don't know, you probably have this too. We've got this big calendar Karen keeps and it's like every day is just jammed full. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not just jammed full and I ask Karen, I... <laughs> I usually ask, I ask Karen at least two, three times a week. I said, have you ever been this tired? And her response is, not that I can remember. But then tomorrow's the next day. Tomorrow's the same thing. It just, you just rock on. You just keep rolling on. And, and the calendar gets fuller and things keep happening. And, and, and again, Karen and I will have the same conversation tonight. And I'll tell her, I'll say, this has got to stop. I mean, I'm like on this treadmill and I'm running 900 miles an hour and it's, it, I can't keep this. It's got to stop. And her response is, here's the calendar. Show me what we can get rid of. Can't get rid of anything. And so we just keep rocking on until we, you know. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, um, I, um, I was living in the Grange and I had this pain in my shoulder right up here. And I went to go see the doctor, and the doctor says, you probably pulled a muscle playing basketball, but since it's your left in the heart and all that kind of stuff, we have to send you to this hospital. And pastors back then got free health care because we didn't have any insurance. And so I went to the Baptist Hospital in Atlanta, and they told me they were going to put me on a treadmill. 
They give me a treadmill test. You ever had one? They try to kill you. I mean, they really do. They, it's not like they want to get you as close as can, can to a heart attack without actually having one. So they, they get you on this treadmill and they crank it up and I'm running. And all of a sudden, as I'm running, I could sense that every step I took forward, I was losing a little ground. You, you know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? And I, I, you know, and I told the lady, I said, listen, if, if I'm going I'm to hit this wall behind me. This is, this is not, it's not working out real well. And, and um, that's kind of how I feel like life is. And who has the time to think about the rapture or to think about the second coming of Christ or to think about prophecy because we barely have enough time to do the stuff we're doing now. But once you do, once you begin to see things from his perspective, hey, Steve, it's not about doing, it's about abiding. And it's not about fretting, it's about watching, just watching. Once, um, once you begin to realize, no, wait a second, you know, my life isn't an end of itself. My life is in preparation for something else. And the fact is I'm here to serve him while I'm here. And all the stuff that I'm busying myself with, if I don't do it, life doesn't stop. God is not displeased. It's just that it messes up my calendar, messes up my schedule and the things that I want to do. And when you, when you begin to, to realize that he's coming, he says he's coming quickly. He's... Uh, and prophetically, the signs are all out there, far more so than they were when I, was a, when I was a young child. Biggest sign ever was Israel coming back as a nation and just the things that are going on, the, the demise of our own country. I talked about this on Tuesday, that um, we talked a little bit about where America is in the end times. There's only two, two vague references to America in the book of Ezekiel, and neither one of them are really promising. You know, if we're the protector of Israel, yet Israel has to make a peace treaty with the Antichrist from the uh, Roman confeder- uh, revived Roman confedera- confederation of nations, as Daniel talked about, then we're, we're, we must not even be a protector anymore. And if you read those passages, you realize as a nation that we're heading exactly down prophetically where the Bible says we would. Come, Lord Jesus. It really doesn't matter unless we're holding on to this world too tightly. The, uh, the reality is that uh, as we start going through this, don't, make it, don't let it be academic. Yes, it's interesting, and yes, it's kind of exciting, and yes, you can kind of debate with people on dispensational charts or covenantalism or premillennial or postmillennial or panmillennial or pre-wrath or post-wrath or all that kind of stuff. It really doesn't matter. We're going to find out exactly what the Lord says and see if we can answer some questions to get us excited about this. Amen? And here's some of the things we're going to talk about. And I shared this on Tuesday. I just want to run this through again for you real quick. So a couple of things we're going to be talking about. What happens to believers who die before Christ returns? And what happens if you're alive when he does return? Scripture talks about that. The general eschatology talks about the eschatology that's going to happen to everybody. So we're going to talk about the rapture. When will it take place? Does the Bible speak about a rapture? If so, where and what does it mean? Uh, what about the Great Tribulation? What happens during the Great Tribulation? How long will it last? How will we know it begins? What will it be like? And who will be in the Great Tribulation? Will we? Will, I mean, I, I need to know. And what's the purpose of the Great Tribulation? How about the millennial reign of Christ? Where and when does it take place? Is it an actual thousand-year reign of Christ, or is it just a symbolic reign of Christ? Who will participate in his millennial reign? Will, will you? 
And if so, what will it be like? Will we actually live for a thousand years? And if so, how are we going to do that? And as I shared Tuesday, we're going to have to have different bodies because mine's wearing out at 60, you know? And how's that supposed to happen? Scripture teach you to talk about that? Yeah, it does. What about this great white throne judgment? I mean, when does that take place? Who's going to be judged? What's the purpose of that, of that judgment? What will be the criteria of that judgment? Will I be judged at the great white throne judgment? Was it just for lost people? Will you be judged? What happens at the great white throne judgment if you end up not getting a passing grade or end up being wanted? And why in the world is it called the great white throne judgment? How about the Antichrist? By the way, why is he called the Antichrist? Where does he come from? Is, uh, what's his purpose and what does he do? The, the, I mean, there's even a physical description of the Antichrist in the Scripture. Is he alive today? And how will he be revealed to the world and when? Listen, I want to go ahead and, um, I want to go ahead and stop here and just kind of dispel with one of the misconceptions we have as Christians. They don't have this misconception in Haiti or in North Korea or in communist China, because they suffer for their faith, and they're used to suffering for the faith. But we in the land of opulence, we don't think anything's ever going to happen to us because we have all the money we need. We, we, you know, we struggle with weight problems because we have all the food we can have. We have homes that the rest of the world would consider a palace. And so we don't really worry about that kind of stuff because nothing bad will ever happen to us. But I want you to realize that what happens is that when the rapture takes place, that the restrainer will be removed, the Christians will be taken away, and then at that point in time, the Antichrist will be revealed, which means he's pretty much unknown until that event. And he raises to prominence, maybe because he has some sort of explanation for this rapture thing that takes place where millions of Christians just disappear. And all the chaos, if you just imagine, all the chaos that will follow that. And so the Antichrist now comes to prominence. But it's quite a while before the Antichrist, I mean, the scripture doesn't say how long it is, but this particular Antichrist has got to raise to the point where he's put together this confederation of, of European nations, most likely Eastern European nations, um, and come and try to offer a peace treaty to Israel for seven years. And when Israel enters into that seven-year peace treaty is when the, the tribulation period begins. In the middle of that tribulation period, the Antichrist will violate the, the um, treaty. He'll demand to be worshipped at God, and the great tribulation takes place. But the time between the rapture and all of a sudden this man come becoming prominent to the time where he has accumulated enough power and political clout because of all the chaos and wars and rumors and wars and pestilence and bad times and tsunamis and all these birth pains that's going to happen before he actually enters into a treaty or Israel enters into a treaty with him could be years. It could be, it could, I mean, who knows? Who knows how long it would be? And who knows how bad it is up until that point that, that when the, 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 uh, the Antichrist rises up and out of all the chaos offers a solution. The, the deal is the fact that things may get incredibly bad before the rapture takes place. It's not like, oh my gosh, my car battery doesn't work. Come Lord Jesus and rapture me now. It doesn't work that way. That we may end up suffering. We should if God is a just God, we should suffer just as much as our brothers and sisters are suffering in other 
countries. And persecution and suffering builds character. It builds faith. It, it makes the church strong. It makes Christians who are sleeping wake up. So don't sit here and say, well, it's going to be fine. Nothing's going to happen because I know the rapture is going to come and Jesus is going to rescue you. Yes, he will. But it doesn't necessarily mean it won't be between, it won't be before you and I suffer, just like other Christians have suffered and are suffering now. Amen? Be aware of that. What about the seventh week of Daniel? I mean, what is that all about? How does that fit into this? What are the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 have to do with the end times? How does the modern state of Israel fit into all this prophetic thing? How close are we to the tribulation? And once we figure that out, what are we supposed to do about it? Is there a theological difference between Israel and the church? Has, has the Israel been set aside and the church taken its place? Most of denominational Christianity believes that. No. Do the promises given to Israel still apply to them? Absolutely. Do, or do they now apply to the replacement, the church? Replacement theology, where the Christian church now assumes the place of Israel, is the greatest form of anti-Semitism ever, ever, ever propagated on those people. And it's done by the church. whole idea with amillennialism. We're going to find out what that means, whether it's true or correct, and it's not. We're going to talk about pre- and post-millennial. What about them? When does the rapture take place? And, so the, and um, the, is the rapture really a, a, a biblical thing, or is it something that somebody made up like 150 years ago? I mean, what, what does the Bible say? We're going to try to answer all the questions you have about it, and we're going to see exactly what God's Word says about the end times. And I'm telling you, it's fascinating. It's life-changing, it's liberating and invigorating, and it is convicting. Because when you realize that there's an expiration date on our life, there's an expiration date on mankind and an expiration date on the church's ministry here on earth, and we don't know when that's coming, but Jesus over and over again says, watch, 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 watch. We need to be watching. We need to guard our life. We need to put things in priority and put him first. Amen? Let me pray.